0: Good morning, welcome everybody, and glad you're here. James chapter 4 this morning, this is war. Have you ever bought anything that you regretted later? Buyer's remorse is an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, you knew you needed it. I mean, you saw the infomercial and it was like, I cannot live without that. How did I make it my 46 years without that item? And so you're convinced, you know, you're surprised you even lived this long without it. And so you make that call, you give them your credit card number for <clears throat> three easy payments of 1995, and your life is going to be changed. You're going to finally win the war of you fill in the blank, whatever it might be. And you waited, and then you waited, and you waited a little longer, and then finally, after so long, it finally shows up in the mail. And you're thinking, wow, you know, I mean, and and the longing for the item was made sweeter by the waiting as you opened it, you're sure your life is going to be changed. And a week later, it's broken. (laughs) Or it finds its place in your closet as a souvenir of your failure. (sighs) It's, It's always that way, isn't it? And yet I think a lot of people feel that way. You know, maybe they've been jaded by these sales techniques and they haven't won the war, and so they feel like, well, it's no different when it comes to God. Oh, everybody's selling him, but I'm not biting. I've been burned before. I know what that's all about. In fact, I guess that's kind of the way I felt as a young man because as a young man, I grew up in a religious home. I guess you would say it was a Christian home. We went to a Christian church. In fact, we were the Sunday school and the church people. You know, I went through Sunday school and then um, caused problems and then I went to church and I sat there and drew on an offering envelopes. so my parents threatened me to stay quiet and to, you know, keep my hands to myself. And, and I hated church. I, I honestly hated it. I, I honestly did not have a good experience and, and you know maybe that was because church was just really boring or maybe it was because life was not like that really. You know, I mean, it was kind of a, a fake moment in the middle of the week or the beginning of the week. And the rest of the week, it was kind of like God was really absent except for at a prayer or except for um, Jesus' name was used a lot when driving, but it wasn't associated with prayer at all. It was something else completely. And I wondered, what would Jesus think if he were to come into our house? And as a kid, I, I, <coughs> it's not that I didn't believe in God. I did believe in God. But I, I didn't have a healthy idea of who God was. In fact, I was kind of scared of God. In fact, it was a fear, but it wasn't a healthy fear. It was a it was a trepidation that I had towards God, and so I kind of pushed that out of my mind and put him on the back shelf. Figured it was a souvenir of my childhood that really didn't mean anything, and I, I honestly, um, didn't have any value for me because if I would reach my hand out to God, He'd probably slap it, right? And so, um, I remember, <coughs> excuse me, as I turned, <coughs> excuse me, into my teen years, I started to do things that. I realized probably were not so good, things that um, I regretted, things that weighed heavy on my heart, and finally I kind of hit bottom, and that kind of forced my hand to, what else am I going to do but cry out to God? And as I reached out to God, thinking maybe my hand's going to get slapped, I was actually surprised that I found God, or or maybe I should say God found me. And I gave myself to God, I mean completely gave myself to God, I, I was like, okay God, this is it. This is the end of the line. I need you to take over. And and certainly God did that. And I found him not just to be a faithful God, but also a God who was, who was powerful, powerful to save me, powerful to save me from my sins, but also powerful to save me from myself. He wasn't going to be some broken relic in the back of my closet. He was going to be something that I lived my life for. And my transformation was radical. I think as we look at the book of James, I think that's what James is going for, is he tries to school us, if you will, in the life of a Christian. And, and certainly the life of a Christian who's been going through some difficult things. You remember that, that these Christians were scattered abroad. They were persecuted. The, the persecution started in Jerusalem. They, they kind of ran for their lives. And I don't know if you've ever been displaced or if you've ever had a difficult time in your life. Or maybe you're going through something now. Maybe um, some political unrest and some uncertainty about riots in certain country, you know, or in certain cities in the world. And, and, a, and a virus or something like that that might be going on in other places other than Emmett. You know, we, we get anxious about things, and to think that God um, is there for us is, is sometimes something that's difficult to deal with, and so we, we, we tend to kind of get anxious, and we start to fight with one another. And certainly that was the case with the church uh, that had run from Jerusalem, the, the church that James is writing to that he's trying to help out. <clears throat> and as they receive this letter, you would think it was kind of like a boot camp for those who are in the war. But the problem was is that they were fighting a battle, that wasn't the battle that they were really in. Have you ever done that? Anybody ever fought the battle that you're not really in? I mean, it's like a, you're fighting this battle over here, but the real battle's over here. And maybe this battle's just a distraction to keep you from what's really right and what's really true. And so James gives us some very direct instruction in his book related to our lives and related to the way that we should live. And I think it's very profound. And so if you're able, will you stand with me? Looking at James chapter 1, verse 1 through 10, James says, by the Holy Spirit, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you not think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And Father, we thank you for your word that is just so poignant, so powerful, and so necessary in this time that we live. I pray, Father, that as we consider the things that James has put here in pen and ink, Lord, that you would just open our hearts to receive what your Spirit is speaking to us above the page, beyond the page, beyond the ink, beyond the words, Lord, that you would speak into our hearts and you'd show us the things that we need to know and you grow us and you change us, Lord, that we would be open to what you have for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. Now, of course you know as you read the book of James that James, as he was writing the book, didn't like write chapter four at the top of the page and then start reading, writing what we are reading today. In fact, he probably just wrote straight through one big letter like you would write a letter and, and just roll that up onto the scroll and then send it out in various directions so that everyone in the church who was in different areas would be able to have a copy of it. And so it doesn't surprise us that what he wrote in chapter 3 directly relates to what he's saying in chapter 4. In fact, it's, it's all important to what he's saying in chapter 4. And so in chapter 3, starting in verse 13, he started talking about wisdom. And he says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where, where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. And so as I mentioned last time, a lot of times it's just human nature. In fact, it's just our regular mode. It's where you start and where you tend to default to. That we make decisions the same way that the damned make decisions, the same way that the lost people of this world make decisions, according to the wisdom of this world, according to the wisdom of our flesh, or according to the wisdom of the devil, the demonic wisdom. And that's just where we are normally. And so, as we saw in James chapter 1, in verse 5, he says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Yet let him ask in faith with nothing doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave tossed to and fro. He, he's unstable in all his ways. Don't expect that man will receive anything from the Lord. So you have this, this promise that James gives us. And I believe it's not only the key to the book of James. And in fact, everything that James writes that is so difficult, that seems so painful as we read it, is easily solved if we just look at James' statement in James chapter five, 1, verse 5 where he says that God gives liberally to those who ask, to those who humble themselves and admit that they lack, to those who then ask God for that wisdom, and he pours it out upon them liberally, but we have to ask in faith. Why is that such a requirement? Well, of course, we know that God, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Those who come to God must know that he exists, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 11. And so God, he wants you to trust him, trust him. He wants you to depend on him. He wants you to be able to look to him and say, well, it's God, so he's faithful and he's true, and there's nothing that he can do to lie, and I absolutely will put my life in his hands because he is trustworthy. Because oftentimes we come to God and say, well, I asked God, but I knew he wasn't going to answer, and he isn't. That's what he said. I'm not going to answer if you ask like that. But if you ask God with, I know God's faithful, I know God is good, and I know he can do anything, and so he can do that for me, he's done that for me, and he will do that for me, then it changes everything. And so this is the, the difference between living in the flesh, living according to our own wisdom, or living in the spirit, working according to God's wisdom. And he describes that in James chapter 3, verse 17 through 18, when he says, but the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is what's produced when we believe God for his wisdom by faith. And of course, that's exactly what he's been trying to get through our thick heads as he's been going through chapter 3. And now he'll explain why things aren't always like that in chapter 4. Notice in verse 1, he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? So in other words, if you're a Christian... You've given your life to Jesus Christ, then how come wars and fights and tumult and problem happen within Christians' lives, within Christian marriages, within Christian churches, within Christian relationships, within Christian friendships? Why is it such a mess? And why is that happening? He says this is what God's wisdom looks like in verse 18 peacemaking, fruitful. So, why do fights and wars? Happening amongst you, I think he'd heard that there might have been some things going on amongst some of those Christians who were scattered abroad. That there's some fights and wars, there's some problems happening. Now I don't know if you've ever been dipl- displaced and you've been put into a difficult situation. You've had to deal with other people, and you know, and, and you're living with somebody because you had to move out of your house suddenly or something. You had a house fire, and now you're living with some other people, and, and it's just tense, isn't it? it? Makes it harder, and and now you're you know in in you're feeling tension from these people you've invaded their space and you know you're kind of feeling uncomfortable and so you and your spouse are a little bit on edge with each other i've been in those situations it's just easy when you you're uncomfortable for things like this to happen and certainly these are things that were common in the early church oh i know i know you you've heard the people say well if it was just like it was in the early church things would be so much better what are they talking about corinth where they were arguing over who was greater, you know, Paul or Apollos or Cephas or Christ. Where they were, they were fighting over, you know, or allowing the person to sleep with his, his mother-in-law. You know, I mean, just crazy stuff was going on in, in, the, in the Corinthian church. And, and Paul had to rebuke them about a lot of things. And then think about Philippi, Iodia and Syntyche. You know, Paul has, hey, you, you sisters just need to get along, right? Just get along in the Lord. And, and, and there's a lot of things that were happening in the early church that were difficult to deal with. You know, honestly, it's, it's kind of like our church. Kind of like every church that's ever existed, because in every church that's ever existed, it's filled with humans who are in the same human condition that every church has ever been. And so there's these problems. So James is going to deal with them, coming at them head on. He says, where do these come from? He says, do not they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? Envy and self-seeking, just as we saw last time, much of what drives our decision-making is earthly, is sensual, is is er worldly or or fleshly wisdom, or demonic wisdom driven by fear or reaction. He uses the word in our members. Now, of course, this word means your body parts. That's what that means when he says your members. I don't know about you, but have your feet ever taken you somewhere they shouldn't be taking you? Has your hand ever reached out to grab something that you shouldn't grab? Has your your heart ever desired something that it shouldn't desire? Or your mind meditated on things that it shouldn't be meditating on? Or your eyes looked at things that you shouldn't be looking on? Or your ears listening to things that you shouldn't be listening to? Which makes your tongue, as we saw in chapter 3, say things you should never say? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And so, yeah, your, your members, the parts of your body are definitely going to lead you to sin or be used for sin. But I have to wonder, is he talking about your physical body or is he talking about the members of the church? The church members. Now, I, I told you it means parts of the body, but remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says that we are all members of the body of Christ, each one doing its part. Have you ever had a part of your body that didn't want to agree with the rest of your body? This happened to me the other day. Anea was over there. She's like, daddy, get me. And I'm not just going to run after her. So I was like, what's that over there? And she looked, and I ran over there, and I jumped, and I came down, and I was like, ow, my knee. I'm too old for that. Okay. I'm not going to get you, baby. Just go. <laughs> Daddy's going to sit down for a little while. <laughs> Man, getting old stinks. Or have you ever sat on the ground and, you know, you, you're trying to get up and one of your members fell asleep? <laughs> I can relate to that because I, I, sometimes I'm preaching a sermon and one of my members falls asleep. <laughs> okay, they're asleep. They're not going anywhere. Oh, man. But is this talking about the members of the church who are falling asleep or, or lame or, or disjointed or, you know, causing problems? Hmm. I wonder. Verse 2, he says, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. This is what it looks like when we try to control our lives. Rather than allowing the wisdom of God to rule our lives, we're trying to control our lives on our own. I'm going to get my way, and I don't care who I have to run over to get it. How does that work out in a marriage, or a friendship, or a parent child relationship, or a work relationship? We're in a church family. It's ugly. We're willing to kill, steal, hurt people, whatever we have to do to get our way. And that's an ugly thing when when a church starts to act like that. Our lives really don't turn out well when we and others act like that. Now when he says murder here, I don't think he's being literal. I think he probably spent a lot of time with Jesus. And so he uses the same metaphors that Jesus uses. And of course, Jesus told us on the Sermon on the Mount, if, you, if you're angry with your brother without cause, it's as good as, as committing murder. Same penalty for that. And so murder is in the heart, and so is, is lust and greed, and all those things are in our hearts. And if we're, if we're assassinating people's character, or hating people, or acting out in, in, because of, we don't like other people, it causes a lot of problems. We have to realize that the war isn't with others. It's with our own evil desires and our desire to get our way. Now, even if somebody's coming against you and attacking you, I mean, think about this. If someone were to come against Jesus and attack Jesus, how did Jesus act? Did he throw a fit? Did he get upset? Did he start calling people bad names? Well, you're just a jerk. No, he didn't do any of that. He, he spoke with godly wisdom. I think I mentioned this last time, but in any time Jesus spoke, it didn't matter if he was even saying you know, difficult things to people, calling them out. They could never, ever say, oh, you're wrong. That's not true. They knew in their hearts it was true. Their only recourse was, let's plot to kill him. That's all they could do. They couldn't argue with what he said. It was absolute Purity, it was absolute wisdom from God. And so too are we supposed to operate in the same way with absolute purity, with absolute wisdom from God. That's what should guard our hearts and our minds, not this fleshly response that we have. We put our trust in God, and we put our trust in our future in God's hands, becoming obedient to him rather than trying to pave my own path. It never works when I try to push to get my way or try to manipulate things to get the outcome that I want. That always blows up in my face. I don't know about you, but it always does. never works out. But yet when I stop stop and I sit back and I say, okay, God, you got this under control. Show me what you want me to do. And I'm just obedient to what I feel God is telling me to do. Everything works out beautifully. Think about it in your own life. What areas are you seeing fighting and warring in your relationships with friends, with your spouse, with your kids, with your work? Or maybe it's even within. You're fighting yourself. You're at that war. You're saying, oh, wretched man that I am. The things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those things I practice, like Paul said. We fight against each other because of our own evil desires. Everyone's life should be put on hold so that my plans can just work out. Stop trying to ruin my way. The other problem, we always think that we know not just how we should... Our life should work out, but we also sh- sh- know how other people's lives should be run, don't we? Well, if they just give that kid a good licking, then he wouldn't act like that. If they'd just stop spending their money that way, if they just start doing this, if they start doing that. And we do, we're experts on other people's lives, aren't we? You know, it's none of our business. Romans chapter 14 verse, <coughs> excuse me, 14 verse 4 says, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands and falls. Indeed, he will make him to stand, for God is able to make him stand. I love that. I don't have to worry about how other people are running their lives. I can pray for them and just say, you know what, God, you're going to make them stand. You're going to work those things out in your lives. And just to love people, not always so worried about what everybody else is doing. So we fight and war against each other. Why? Because we want our own way. That's the simple truth. We just want our own way. He says the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield full of mercy and good fruits without partiality, without hypocrisy. Those who partake of it become peacemakers. That's what he told us in the last chapter. You know, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Those who don't, as he warned in chapter 3, verse 15, are led by this wisdom that is earthly, fleshly, even demonic. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Again, in verse 2, he says, Yet you you do not have because you do not ask. Here in verse 2, he says, The reason that we lack is because of prayerlessness. It's prayerlessness. We don't ask God for what we need. And why don't we ask? Well, Because we think we can handle it. I don't need a God for this. I just, I can handle this on my own. How many of you guys have done that in your life? Just a couple people up here in front. We'll talk afterwards. Just kidding. Seriously, how many of us have done that? I'm not going to ask God because I, it's my fault. I'm going to do it on my own. Because you don't have because you don't ask. It's prayerlessness. It's prayerlessness. Remember what Jesus said? We talked about this last time. John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. Yeah, yeah. we, we think we can handle it, but guess what? You can't. All you can do is make a mess. All you can do is make it worse. You need Jesus. But the other problem is that when we do ask, we're... We ask for foolish things to consume it upon our lust. He says in verse 3, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Have you ever prayed a presumptuous prayer? God, you know I need that Camaro. <laughs> if I had it, you know I would tell everybody about you. And I, I would, as they came up admiring the car and they touched its glossy coat, I'd say, don't touch that. But you know what? You need to hear about Jesus. I would give everyone a ride to church if you just let me have that Camaro. <sighs> Lord, please just let me, let me marry him. I know he's not a believer, but you know he'll, he'll become one if, I, if you let me marry him. Lord, I know he's a jerk, but he'll change. No, he won't. <laughs> he won't change. Oh, boy. It's such a hard concept to grasp. Don't we withhold things from our children when we know that they're going to be bad for them? No, you can't play in the middle of the street with the knife. It's not safe. I hate you. You always ruin my fun. You're not a good mommy. Oh, man. I love it when I've prayed prayers. Oh, God, please just let this happen or let that happen. And and he said no. And then years later, I'm like, oh God, thank you. <laughs> that didn't happen. I'm thank you, so you, you didn't answer that prayer. What it boils down to is our relationship with God. Do you realize that God is longing, is, is yearning for time to spend with you? To hear your voice, to hear about your problems, to hear about your concerns, to talk to you about that anxiety that you've been facing, to, to work with you through that problem uh, about the cancer or, or about the, the money problems or whatever it might be. He's yearning just to spend time with you. Even the good things, he wants to talk to you about that new job you got or that new baby or or that you just got married. He wants to talk to you. He wants to be involved in your life. He desires to shower you with blessings. And he calls out to you, come sit, let's talk. let's, Let's have a conversation. And yet so often when he calls, what he gets is a busy signal. I'm just too busy. You saw the caller ID and like, oh, I don't want to talk to him right now. I don't want to talk to God because I know what he's going to say. He says the same thing he's always said and I just don't really want to hear that right now. In in fact, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to ignore this because I know what God's going to say and I don't like it. Anybody ever done that? I don't want to hear what God has to say. I'm just moving that direction. Or maybe we hand the phone to our friends and say, hey, you talk to God. Hey, will you pray for me? I'm going through some tough things. I'm gonna pray for myself. I'm gonna have you pray for me. You're you're closer to God. I think that I better ask you to pray. Tell God I'm busy. What does James say about this? Verse 4. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's calling us, he's calling you and me adulterers and adulteresses. Why? Because oftentimes we really believe in our heart of hearts that. Something is going to satisfy other than God Himself. That something is going to make me happy if I just had this, or I just really can't t- spend time seeking God and knowing God right now because I really have this other thing that's just so pressing, so important to me. And what we do is we set up our idols, our shiny things, and we say, oh, this is really what life is about, and it's not. We make our life about the temporal and not about the eternal. In fact, that's exactly what John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. He says, do not love the world or the things of the, in the world. And If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. You see, there is, there is a, a, a temporal life that we can live. And there's an eternal life that we can live. And if I'm living for the things on this earth, and that's what my life is all about, is my job and my relationships and and my importance and all the things that I'm trying to go for, I will find myself very dissatisfied and very angry and very lonely. But if I make my life about God and the things of God, and I let him fill my life, then my life becomes very full in fact, it doesn't, just, it doesn't just feel like I'm living for something here. I know that I'm living for something that's going to last forever. It's such a difference. And yet I've met so many people who are living for now and talk to them about their life, and they're like, I really just don't want Jesus. I really don't really want to live for what Jesus wants for me. I just want to live for me right now. And that's just so sad. Because as much as it makes them miserable, they don't want to let go of it. Verse 5, he says, or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who yearns, in a, or dwells in us yearns jealously? God is jealous for you. That should make you feel good. He is jealous for your time and jealous for your affection because he knows that the other things that you're going to for affection and the things you're spending your time on are going to destroy you. It's the same way you feel jealous for your kids when they start to hang out with those drug users. They start to hang out with the shady group and, and you know that those people are kind of, are, are, are saying, hey, come with us, be cool. And you're like, no, don't go with them. You're jealous for your kids. It's like if, if, your, if your spouse were to call you and say, hey, I'm not gonna be home for dinner tonight because my high school sweetheart is in town and we're gonna go out and hang out. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> Wouldn't that make you jealous? It should make you jealous. You should, you are not, you know. You better be joking. I will kill you, (laughs) right? I mean, that's how you should feel. And God feels the same way. James, of course, is talking about believers and, and he's, he's saying it very graphically. God made you for himself. He sent his son, his only son, who gave his life for you so that you could live. Therefore, turn to God, be reconciled to God. Make God your life, for he is your life how easy it is to be deceived by the world, the flesh, and the devil, that there's something else out there in this life that can satisfy us as much as God can satisfy us. This life is not for you to struggle along to make something of yourself. It's not so that you can become something great in and of yourself. It is so that you can find God, be reconciled to him through his son, and live out your days in his presence that's what this life is about anything outside of that is empty and unfulfilling it doesn't it doesn't satisfy you might be thinking well i just want to live for me right now i I spent all my time for other people and now i just want to spend time for myself confusion and every evil thing is there my friend do you really want to go that direction? What if I told you the only thing that can satisfy you is God himself? Every time you try to fill that void with something else, it's just going to be empty. It's just going to be unsatisfying. And yet a life yielded to him is truly what makes us fulfilled. Fulfilled. Psalm 16, verse 11 says, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. How easily we commit a spiritual adultery, leaving God to find something, try to find fulfillment in something else. (coughs) He's saying, I have everything you're seeking, everything you're yearning for. It's in my presence. In my presence is fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning. And rest. That's what I have for you. God's telling us, being sold out for Jesus maybe doesn't sound like the best plan for your life. You know, I've met those weird people. I don't want to be like that. Okay, I will admit, weird Christian is not my favorite thing either. I'm, I'm not into that. I, you know, I think some people are just bizarre and they act funny and they move funny and they twitch and weird things. I, I don't. I'm not into that. I. <laughs> I honestly think that we can control ourselves a little bit better than that as Christians. I think we have a reasonable faith. I think God is powerful. But I I get it. You know, I, I meet people all the time who don't really feel like it's for them. I get that. I will admit that it seems foolish sometimes to surrender my whole life to God. I mean, come on. On the other hand, if God is real, and he is the creator of the universe, and he did create me, then maybe it's kind of reasonable to surrender my whole life to God. If God truly is there, and he truly loves me, and he created me for a purpose, then actually it's kind of insane not to surrender my whole life to God. You know, that's the kind of the conclusion I came to as an eighteen year old kid kneeling beside my bed as I gave my life to Jesus. I, I remember saying those words, okay, God, whatever you want in my life, that's what I want. And then I realized, okay, that's not quite enough. Okay, even if I don't want it, you have my permission to force it on me. Okay, there we go. That was surrender. And I think that's why my, my transformation was so radical, why I was so converted. Like, I remember the next day waking up and just like, I don't want to sin anymore. Like, listening to Christian radio and just absorbing it like a sponge. I wanted to be different. I was changed. I didn't want the old. I didn't want that anymore. It was gone. It was the past. I wanted to live for Jesus now, whatever that meant. In fact, the Bible actually tells us that this is a reasonable thing to do. In fact, in in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, or I implore you, or I beg you, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. In other words, it's just the logical thing to do. It's the reasonable thing to do, to give your life completely to God. Because what else is there? everything else is fleeting everything else is temporal give yourself to what's eternal is what he's saying here what happens when we surrender our lives to God the evidence is in this room I've talked to so many of you man ever since I gave my life to Jesus I I mean I it's just it's amazing to to know that my sins are forgiven that the guilt is gone the shame is gone I'm filled with love I I I was I was talking to somebody the other day, he says, I had love for a guy that I hated my entire life. I remember feeling that myself. I knew God was real. That was the moment I knew God was real. I was sitting there, I was looking at a guy that I normally would have run down with my car if I, at least I would have thought about it. And, and I saw him crossing the street, and it would have been my chance. And my heart was overcome with love for the guy. I was like, wow. My greatest enemy in the world got saved. Just a month before I ran into him again. And immediately he became my best friend. One of my best friends pastors Pocatello Baptist Church in Pocatello. And we were great friends. We used to hate each other. Jesus changes our lives. He changes our hearts. He changes who we are from the inside out. He makes us into something beautiful. To have our sin removed. To have our shame washed away. Not because of ourselves, but because of the things that God is doing in us and through us. Notice verse 6, he says, but he gives more grace, therefore. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is willing to give grace and to supply your every need. But you've been looking for love in all the wrong places, as the old song goes. He says, humble yourselves before God. But if we're too proud to submit to God, we will be resisted. Grace to the humble, he resists those who are puffed up. Humility is not looking down upon yourself. I, I just want to clarify that. It's not having a bad self-esteem. That's kind of actually impossible. It's really seeing yourself in truth. Who am I really before God? Look in the mirror at yourself. Am I really a good person? No. No. But God is good. And in spite of me, God loves me and he he sent his son to lay his life down for me. And now he wants to invite me into himself to have life and to have life more abundantly. It's a whole new life. And so he says, verse 7, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Submit, he says. Now submission is a hard word for some of us, isn't it? I think honestly for all of us, submit is a hard word. most people have a tough time with that i I talk to a lot of couples It's interesting i i will sit down with a couple they're going through troubles in their marriage and i I ask the man if if you knew well, I asked the woman I, I asked the woman first I think I ask the woman i say if if your husband loved you more than anything in the world, that he doted on you, that he couldn't wait to see you every day because he loved you so much and he treated you with so much love, would you have a problem submitting to him? And the women say, no, no. I would submit to him. If I, if I, if I knew that he loved me like that, I would submit to him, no problem. Then I asked the husband, if you knew your wife was 100% behind you, she believed in you, honey, you're the the smartest, the best looking, the most amazing man in the entire world. Would you have any problem loving that woman? No, that's exactly what I want to hear. (laughs) (laughs) And yet God loves you so much. God has such care and tenderness towards you, and, and to think that it, submitting to Him would be a bad thing. Oh, I just know if I if I give my life to God, He's going to send me somewhere awful. I'm going to end up in Africa and get bit by some poison frog or something in Papua New Guinea or something like that, and die in the middle of the jungle. It's just going to be horrible. There was a woman who was having a hard time with this idea of consecration, giving myself completely to God, surrendering my life completely to God, submitting, yielding, all those things. She's just like, I just, I don't see it. I don't see how that's, that's something I want to do. I'm just afraid of that. Well, she was an adoptive parent. She had this little boy that she doted on. His name was Charlie, just a, a, a cute little adopted boy. And he was the delight of her heart, as adopted kids tend to become. And, and, this woman said to her, you know, if, if Charlie were to come to you and say, Mommy, <clears throat> I am so sorry for all the times I said no to you. I'm so sorry that I've been <clears throat> disobedient to you at times. And from now on, I, just, I really just want to be the best boy. And I, I want to I submit to your will. And I want to do what you, you've asked me to do. And I, I'll try not to give you trouble anymore. Would you say, oh, good, now I can give him all the horrible chores. Now I can inflict him with hard bondage. She's like, no, I would never do that. In fact, I would be overjoyed. I'd, I'd want to bless him more. And she said, and you think our Heavenly Father, who is a much better father than you are a mother, would do any less for you? She says, oh, now I see. Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, that old snake. How do we resist him? Well, the devil comes to us. He gives us his wisdom. His wisdom is all lies, all fear. How do I resist the devil? I speak truth to him. I speak, let me say it another way, I speak the word of God to him. Remember what Jesus did? Jesus was tempted by the devil. Remember Matthew chapter four, he was driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And every time the devil brought his accusations before Jesus, Jesus quoted the word of God. If you are the son of God, make this bread stone. Or just stone bread. He wouldn't want to make bread into stone. Make this stone into bread. And he says, thou shalt not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. According to Deuteronomy 8. If you're the son of God, cast yourself down from this temple, as it is written. And Satan can quote scripture too. He shall... Um, he shall give his angels charge over you, lest you dash your foot against a stone. He, he skipped part of it, which is to keep you in all of your ways, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Script, Satan always twists scripture, doesn't he? And Jesus said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, quoting from Deuteronomy. And then a third time, he took him to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in an instant. Says, you're the son of God, or he says, all these things can be yours. If you just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, you shall worship God and Him only shall you serve. And then it says in Matthew chapter four verse eleven. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Two things we learn from this: <clears throat> when Satan comes with his lies, <clears throat> excuse me, when Satan comes with his lies, we counteract it with the truth. We counteract it with the Word of God. When He comes to us and says this, you know, God doesn't love you. No, God loved me so much He gave His Son for me. When Satan comes with his lies, you, you speak the truth of God's word. Or as Pastor Jeremiah told the men at the men's retreat one year, you give that temptation a Bible study. Right? Give that temptation a Bible study. And when we quote the word of God to the devil, to that temptation, it, he will flee. But there's the second thing we learn is that when we overcome when we get past the temptation, when we're obedient to God, when we say, no, I'm not going to do it. After Satan fled, remember what it said? Angels came and ministered to him. Those who overcome have reward when they face the crucible of temptation and, been a- and they've been able to resist. You see, oftentimes the way it works is, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Okay, just this once and then never again. And we miss the blessing that comes from overcoming because temptation will come again and again and it comes in waves as the enemy tries to defeat us, as he tries to discourage us, as he tries to tempt us. And when we just say, no, this is what the word of God says. I'm taking that thought captive and into obedience to Christ. And when we do, even though the temptation seems overwhelming, then the enemy flees. And the Lord Jesus comes and ministers to us. And it's a beautiful thing. There is a reward for those who overcome temptation. We often just give up way too easily. Realize that the temptation will end if you continue to stand strong and overcome and you will be rewarded for that. Verse 80 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise, guys. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Did you hear me? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, I think that's something that happens oftentimes in our lives where we maybe feel a little bit distant. Have you ever been distant from a friend, and it would just be weird to call him? Like, I haven't talked to him so long that it's just now it's weird. Or maybe you've done some things, and you're not real proud of them. And so you don't really want to face the people who might want to hold you accountable. And we feel that way about God. I can't go to God because I've been kind of doing some stupid stuff. I can't just pray for and ask God to help me because I haven't really talked to him about anything. And it would just be presumptuous to come to him and say, Okay, God, you know, I've been kind of living life like a scum, but now I really need your help. And so I think I probably just need to figure it out on my own. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. There have been times in my Christian life where I've gone through a valley or I've gone through a a period of dryness or maybe I just haven't really prayed, I've been in stress or whatever the the excuses are. But whatever the reason is, I just haven't been able to spend time with the Lord like I'd like to spend time with the Lord. And I feel like God's so far away. And it seems like, like getting back to him would be this long, unpleasant journey that would just be too difficult. But you know what I've discovered? is oftentimes all it takes is for me to get into a room and sometimes, just to be honest, it's my bathroom at work. I go in there and close the door. Everybody thinks I'm doing something else. I get on my knees on the floor and I just say, oh God, I just need to spend some time with you. I feel so dry. I just just need to be refreshed. And you know, it doesn't take very long when you just get to do business with God, that he meets you there, that he refreshes your soul. I've discovered that it only takes chapter one of A.W. Tozer's pursuit of God before I feel like I'm dwelling in the heavenlies again? I'm sure there's a lot of repentance and things that go on in the midst of that, but that's exactly it. That I can lay aside everything and say, okay, no to all that, and yes to Jesus. Yes, Jesus, I just need you. We think, oh, I can't come to God, just like the prodigal who was a long way off, thinking, okay, I'm just going to be my father's slave. I'm not worthy to be a son. And when he was way, off, way far off, when the father saw him, he dropped everything. He pulled up his robe, and he ran to his son, and he fell on his neck. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, friend. If you don't hear anything else in this sermon, I want you to hear that one thing. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You're not too far away. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. God wants to pull you in. He wants you to be his child. He loves you. He yearns to spend time with you. He yearns to to pour upon you his blessing. And yet it's because you've been running from him that he can't. He wants to satisfy your soul. And the only thing that will do that is himself. So I say it again, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. It's a promise. How do I do that? Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. I love how practical this is. Sometimes they use this in marriage counseling. I'll 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 start reading this. I start with adulterers and adulteresses. (laughs) And I take them through this, and I was like, if you want your marriage to work, you need to fight for it. You need to get on your face before God and repent of all this stuff you've done to each other. You need to seek God for it. And it's worth it. Why would we, why would we neglect this? Sometimes we have to just get busy and do business and shut the door and get on our face or get on our knees and cry out to God and say, God, save me. Humble myself. Mourn and weep over our sin. Confess our weakness and our failure and our inability without without me says you can do nothing. Lord, I can't do anything without you. I just messed things up. Beg God to replace your anger, to intervene in your marriage, to help you out of that pit. God, help me. I, I I don't even know if I'm willing, but I'm willing to be made willing, God. Do something. Change me. Correct me. I remember when I first got saved and other times since then. Just getting alone with God, crying out for help. We all need serious help, soul-saving help, Christian. We must realize that. Otherwise, I'm headed for destruction. I'm living for things that are temporal. I want to live for things that are eternal. I want to live for God. And it's only when we humble ourselves that he will help us. Our lives need to be dependent upon him to go to God, to humble ourselves and and to receive that knowing that when I draw near to him, he's going to draw near to me. It's a promise. It's a promise, Christian. You don't have what it takes to fight this battle. And yet when we go to him, he gives us the armor, he gives us the covering, he gives us the ammo, he gives us the power to live this Christian life. Without him, I, I'm nothing. Without him, I'm just going to be confused and scared. Without him, I'm going to be walking according to the wisdom of this world. And so he's calling out to us, and he's saying, hey, guys, stop all that. Stop the train. Get off and get on your face. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word. We, we thank you, Lord, that we can come and the book of James has its way of doing business with our hearts in our lives, Lord. We're so desperate for you, Lord. We're so needy for you, Lord. We're in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So we yearn after you, Lord. We seek you, Lord. When we meet you, Lord, you meet us. And I just pray, Lord, as we Partake of communion this morning as we gather together to remember what you did for us, Lord. there it would be a time of, of doing business. A time of laying it all down in your presence and saying, God, we, we really need you. We need you now more than ever. As a nation, as a church, as an individual, Lord, I need you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would meet us here that you'd encourage us, Lord, that you'd strengthen us, that you'd point out those things in our lives that need to change, that we need to let go of. And Lord, that we would start living for things that matter, things that are eternal. We thank you and praise you for this time we have together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me?